This has been a, uh, a class that I've really enjoyed doing several times over the last 15 years or so. Um, typically it's just called reading the Gospels and as Mike said we just try to put the Gospels alongside each other and let things happen. Um, that creates challenges, um, it creates really interesting questions, and what it keeps doing is taking us back into the text so that over and over um, the, the solution, if you will, to the extent that we find solutions, is found not in just closing the book and walking away, but in, in reading more, reading more carefully, doing the work that's, that's required to try to understand what the different gospel writers are up to. It is interesting that we have four gospels. Um, and that's a rabbit trail that I won't go down right now, but, but don't let it miss you that there are in fact four Gospels. And when you put them alongside each other, as I say, interesting things happen. Um, you have on the seat there a uh, handout, and if you'll take the one that you hold horizontally with uh, the three columns, you'll see um, just the openings of each of the four canonical Gospels. This is one of the handouts that I use typically on the first day, and we just, we just get a, t a sense for how different each of the Gospels is from the others. Look at Matthew. What a fascinating way to grab the audience. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and on and on it goes. David the father of Solomon, verse 12, after the deportation of Babylon. You get to the end, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or Messiah. Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, quotes Isaiah and Micah, <clears throat> jumps right into the story about John the baptizer, on down in verse 9 to Jesus, coming out of Nazareth, Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends, he goes into the wilderness, and after John is arrested, which doesn't happen until chapter 4 in Matthew, Luke, or John, Jesus steps out and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. In the next line or two, he starts calling disciples and he is off and running. Public ministry right from the beginning of Mark. And though it, the, the translators even this out for us, in that section of 15 verses, the word end, that little conjunction in Greek occurs probably 25 or 30 times. It's just a breathless, um, you know, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and there went out to him all the country and all the people of Jerusalem and they were baptized and they confessed their sin and John was clothed with God and he preached and it's got that kind of breathless rattling along kind of quality. No birth narratives, not much by way of introduction. We jump right into the sort of disciples view of the whole story. Luke, is this considered introduction? Others have done this work and that's good, but it seemed to me in verse 3 also having followed all things closely for some time to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. And then Luke launches into this wonderful long first chapter and into the second chapter with the birth narratives of John and of Jesus. John's Gospel. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And down to verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. They're strikingly different, aren't they? And I'd encourage you to do more work. We, we can't do a lot tonight, but do, do some more work with that. One of the questions I ask the students when we do this class is we do that much, and I say, okay, if you had to choose just one of these Gospels and say, okay, that's the one I'm going to read, which one would have caught your attention? Which one would you, would you want to keep reading? Um, at any rate, it's just wonderfully rich that we've got these four um, Gospels, and when um, we then proceed with them, we get something like this, just, just a real simple schematic to kind of lay out the story and how it unfolds. Um, in Mark, as I say, we've got just a few verses of introduction, but in Matthew, Luke, and John, I would say we've got pretty much four chapters of introduction, and by introduction I mean birth narratives and um, all the way through the ministry of John the Baptizer until he is put in prison. This is actually a very striking part of the narrative. You know, you could have the whole story of Jesus and not have John, but you do have John. And it's fascinating that that is there and that Jesus deliberately holds back until this very poignant moment when John is put in prison. Then you have the public ministry of Jesus, again, kicks right in in Mark and Matthew, an extended development of that ministry in chapters 5 to 16. Luke moves through this much more rapidly, and John gives only a couple of chapters to the section of Jesus' public ministry from its beginning through Peter's profession of faith in Jesus. So you have this great high water mark of Peter's profession that Jesus is the Christ and in John that he is the Christ and to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life but it is interesting Matthew spends 11 or 12 chapters to handle this Mark 8 Luke does it in 4 John gives us only a couple of chapters before we get to that point and in the class, that's the first semester. The second semester then picks up with the transfiguration and Jesus turning toward Jerusalem very deliberately, coming off of Peter's profession in the transfiguration. Now, Matthew covers it in just four chapters, Mark in just a couple. Luke really expands here and gives us 11 chapters plus, and we get a lot more from John in that period as well. Finally, we move to the final week then, the entry into Jerusalem, and you can see that this is largely, if you took the whole gospel uh, corpus together, about a quarter of it would be devoted to the final week of, of Jesus' ministry uh, through the trial, um, the, the, the uh, Last Supper, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. But just to give you a little, little bit of a schematic of the whole story and how the Gospels lie down alongside each other. And tonight then what we'll do is we'll stay in the first half here. We'll focus on Matthew 
Um, but we will put Matthew particularly alongside Mark and Luke in order to try to get a sense for the story and then see what uh, emerges as we do that, particularly with regard to what I will then call uh, the Matthew problem. Um, if you take that handout, where is it, and turn it over then <coughs> to where you have it vertically, you'll see the idea that Mark gives us the basic story of Jesus' ministry. Um, many scholars, but not all, and, and you've always got to be careful when people say scholars agree that or scholars say that, okay? There are scholars who say, but there are usually other scholars who say something differently. Um, so just, and that applies to me as well. But having said that, one of the places on which many scholars do agree is, is, is they view Mark as the initial telling of the story, the initial writing down of the story. It is the shortest account. Pretty much everything that appears in it appears in other Gospels. Um, and it moves right along. And so you have then the invitation of the disciples, this day in Capernaum that kicks things off with a healing, uh, the calling of Levi, the eating with sinners, questions about the Sabbath, and then the calling of the Twelve, followed by these episodes, the teaching in parables, the storm at sea, crossing the sea to the Gerizim demoniac, coming back, and the story of Jairus's daughter being raised from the dead. Mark includes a visit to Nazareth at that point, and then the sending of the twelve. As they come back, the record of John's death, John the baptizer's death, and the attempt to retreat, which becomes the story of the fight, feeding of the 5,000, and then a few more episodes after that before you get to Peter's profession. Um, those episodes include, incidentally, um, two of the um, episodes that are unique to Mark's account. As I say, he gives us a pretty quick account. His emphasis is on action rather than teaching. You can find very little by way of extensive, extended teaching in Mark. Um, and then what you do have are a couple of phrases that will maybe resonate for you. Uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but set the Sabbath for man. Mark is the only gospel that gives us that. Uh, the father who brings his son to Jesus after the transfiguration, and Jesus asks, do you believe? And he says, yes, help me in my unbelief. Yes, that's Mark. Um, and then there are two miracles, and they are the ones here um, at the bottom of that page, the healing of the deaf and dumb man, in chapter 7, the strange healing of the blind man in chapter 8, where it doesn't take the first time, and Jesus needs to touch this man a second time to give him sight. I can't go into it, but my own view is that uh, the Gospel of Mark <coughs> is giving us um, giving us this, this story sort of from the standpoint of the disciples, uh, that, that it's really their story. So that at the beginning, for instance, um, um, at the beginning of uh, you know, at the beginning, you don't get introductory stuff. You jump right in with a, with a disciple's standpoint. And I would say that even some of these details that I just mentioned 
are the kind of things that caught the attention of the disciples. <laughs> that, yeah, I believe, help my unbelief. Boy, did that resonate with the disciples. Um, it's that kind of a thing. And, and I think even these couple of miracles that are unique to Mark have implications for the disciples as well. Now, the next thing we do then is we take the book of Matthew and we lay it alongside the book of Mark. And the handout you got has two sides, but get the one with all the squiggly lines on it in front of you, okay? Uh, this one is what you should be looking at. Matthew lays out the story, and there's a lot, there, there's some things that are unique to, to Matthew, um, but there's a lot of similar episodes, and then you'll see they don't line up with Mark's telling. You can just kind of glance down the page and get the idea. Maybe, I mean, one of the most obvious ones is when Mark has Jesus coming back, look down in chapter 5 of Mark. He comes back after the Gerizim demoniac, and Mark tells us that um, this episode with Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead follows immediately. If you follow that line up, you'll see that Matthew has it much earlier. Um, and there are a couple of things that happen in between the storm at sea, which he also has much earlier, and Jairus' daughter. So the storm at sea is separated from Jairus' <coughs> daughter by several episodes, including the healing of the paralytic, calling of Matthew, a couple other things. The calling of the twelve is a specific kind of episode in Mark. The sending of the twelve comes much later. Matthew consolidates all of that in chapter 10, basically, from the last verses of chapter 9 through the first verse of chapter 11. Um, I, I won't try to work through the detail, but, but I think this, the, the lines just give you the idea, uh, at least, that um, we've got two different versions. And it simply raises a question. And, and you can say, well, who cares? You know, it's okay. They get different versions. No big deal. But, but I'm not sure it's that simple. I, I think it does raise a question. Why, why would these two versions be as different as they are when both of them certainly at first glance and upon first reading look like they are giving you the story as it happens? Um, what shall we make of this conflict or contradiction, if you will, between these two accounts? How shall we understand the differences? Is one of these two writers mistaken, confused, relying on bad records, or is somebody up to something that may mean we need to think a little more carefully and read a little bit more carefully? How shall we address a problem like this? Well, this is where having a third and fourth gospel can turn out to be helpful. To cut to the chase, John doesn't turn out to be that helpful on this question. Um, but Luke does. And so if you turn that sheet over, 
I've just run Luke down that middle column, and almost without exception, Luke matches up with Mark. He adds some material, um, and in chapter 8 of Luke and in chapter 4, um, you have italicized references there about halfway down and a little bit further, which indicate a couple of places where Luke and Mark do vary, um, and we could talk about it if you want, but, but overwhelmingly you can see that Luke lines up with Mark. That's helpful, isn't it? Um, when we add Luke then, um, we see that he lines up with Mark and suggest then that Matthew seems to be the odd man out here. There are other interesting patterns in what we see here in Luke. Um, for instance, when you get to the bottom of the page, after the feeding of the 5,000, Mark and Matthew are, are parallel. They give us the stuff from the feeding of the 5,000 through Peter's profession, it lines up completely. Luke drops out. That's kind of interesting. You add the introduction to Luke that we just glanced at as we began this evening, and what did he say? Others have done work here. It's good work. It's reliable work. I've done some work too, and I particularly wanted to research everything I can, and I want to give you an, an orderly account. Now, we don't know that orderly means, strictly speaking, chronologically orderly, but it certainly has that tone and sort of suggests that kind of approach for Luke, that he's wanting to give us that kind of an account, and that Luke and Acts have that, that tone that come as close to something like we would call history as anything in these, in these Gospels gets uh, from our perspective 2,000 years later. Um, so you've got the sense that maybe then Mark is also working pretty much chronologically along with Luke and that Luke is giving us one, a chronological account parallel to Mark. Luke, I think, has in some form before him both Mark's account and Matthew's gospel. He knows that when you have those two together, there is a problem. It creates confusion for the reader. And so Luke clarifies the confusion, corrects misunderstandings, and helps us understand the chronological telling on the one hand and leaves us with a question of Matthew. The other thing Luke does is he completes the story. He has wonderful additions. Some of them you can see here uh, just below Calling the Twelve in chapters 6 and 7 of Luke. Um, and, and that will continue in the second half of Luke. Remember here you've got 11 chapters uh, of, of Luke taking us on the road to Jerusalem. And that's where you'll get a lot of additional material in Luke, um, including some of your favorite passages such as the, the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son. Um, so, this starts to give us a picture of the three Gospels. Mark, the initial telling. Rapid fire, quick, active. Um, Matthew, and, and probably oriented toward a, a Greek or a mixed audience of Greek and Jew and 
very likely the idea that it was that it was particularly targeted to the Christian church in Rome in a time of persecution has has a lot to be said for it I think but I think that it's that first telling it's it's grasping it and getting it down Matthew then becomes the gospel I would say that comes second um, and and is very much written for his fellow Jewish audience it is the hinge gospel between the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament. Um, in every collection of the four gospels together that I think we know of, Matthew is the first one. Um, and, and, it, and it serves that function where Matthew is clearly trying to connect with the Hebrew prophets and, and, and locate Jesus within that tradition. Now, all the gospels do that, but Matthew is really arguing that case. And then I think Luke comes along and gives us a clarification where there is confusion. He gives us a chronological approach and he complements or completes the story for us. I think that's all helpful. And it gives us some sense for how the different gospels are, are, um, are, are working. But it still leaves us with what I would call the Matthew problem. If Matthew is the odd man out, why is he doing what he's doing? Why do we end up with this contradiction between the way he narrates the story and the way Mark Luke narrate the story? Well, this is where I say, let's read more carefully then and see what we can figure out. Just staying with Matthew for a minute, it is worth going back and noting in Matthew that there is a structure in place. And that structure is a five-fold structure that goes back and forth between sections of events or action activity and then sections of teaching. So in, cha in chapters 1 to 4, you have the genealogy, birth narrative, uh, John the baptizer, Jesus being baptized, the wilderness experience, the temptations of the, of the devil, um, and, that, and the calling of the first disciples. Then chapters 5 to 7... Extensive teaching, Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 8 and 9, we go back to activity, a series of miracles that we'll look at more closely in a couple of minutes. Chapter 10, Jesus' instruction to the disciples. Um, it is interesting that to get all of that instruction from Luke, you've got to go to about six different places in Luke's Gospel to get what Matthew gives us in one dense, long chapter, chapter 10. Um, in chapters 11 and 12, more actions, interchanges, growing tension. Chapter 13, a long chapter of teaching of the Proverbs. Um, many of them are in the other Gospels, some of them unique to Matthew. Another section of activity from 14 to 17 and then Jesus is teaching about relationships in the church in chapter 18. 19 to 23 is the movement toward Jerusalem, the entry into Jerusalem, the first the week in Jerusalem, chapters 24 and 25, a major teaching section uh, at the temple, and then finally chapters 26 to 28, um, the Last Supper, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So five-fold structure, events, teaching, events, teaching, events, teaching. That's helpful. That suggests that Matthew is up to something. 
doesn't exactly say what he's up to, but he is grouping things. He, he's doing some grouping there. Like I say, chapter 10, the teaching that you get to the disciples, you've got to go to several places in Luke to get that same teaching. Um, <coughs> the other thing that emerges when you look more closely at Matthew is that he really is developing an argument. I would argue that all four of the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, present Jesus as the Christ or Messiah and as the Son of God. We can talk about that if you want, but I would argue that all four of them do that. But Matthew very deliberately forms an argument and, and, and writes in the form of an argument, and it is very much an argument uh, based in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus is the Christ or Messiah as attested by, number one, his genealogy, his credentials, son of Abraham, son of David. Number two, he is the Christ or Messiah as attested by his fulfillment of Hebrew prophecies. And so you have these numerous examples of this. Chapter 1, verse 22, Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us, in keeping with Isaiah 7:14. In chapter 2, verse 6, Bethlehem will be his birthplace in keeping with Micah 5, chapter 2, or chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter 2, verse 18, this, this horrid mourning over the infants in keeping with Jeremiah 31, verse 15. The appearance of John as the forerunner in chapter 3, verse 3, in keeping with Isaiah 40, verse 3. Jesus is moved to Capernaum in Galilee. Matthew takes, in chapter 4, uh, Matthew takes as a fulfillment of Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Okay? So he's developing an argument based on the genealogy, based in the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. And then we go into the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaking from the scriptures speaks with authority. And so at the conclusion of that sermon, we are told by Mar Matthew that the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the Sermon on the Mount, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So now what we've got is Jesus' teaching as a demonstration of his messianic authority and then when we go into chapters 8 and 9, we've got the question, what is Matthew doing here? Normally, in teaching this, if we were meeting every week, this would be the end of the period, and I would send you away and tell you to go think about this and see if you can figure out what's going on. Um, I won't do that to you tonight. I can't do that to you, unfortunately, much as I would love to. Um, and, I, and I'll go ahead and just tell you then, I think this is what's going on. Just as, Jesus has, or just as Matthew has argued that Jesus' teaching demonstrates his messianic authority, now in chapters 8 and 9, he is arguing that his miraculous signs also demonstrate his messianic authority. Um, and I want you to be sure to have this in front of you. So... Um, you want to help me again? That'd be great. Thank you. <coughs> um, and we will look at the. Hold on. 
and see what he's doing here. Um, so Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew is grouping together a set of miracles that are signs. And I think they are signs of Jesus' messianic authority. And I think what is leading Matthew to do this the way he does it is that he is actually going from the least to the greatest demonstration of Jesus' authority. So in the first verses of Matthew 8, and I, um, let me see your copy. Did I mess up the uh, initial? Yeah, where it says 9 1. Um, it should be 8 1. Yeah, that's 8 1. If you're on the page that says Matthew 8 9 at the top, you're at the right place. Um, and that should say 8 1, not 9 1. So at the beginning of chapter 8, um, we've got Jesus coming down from the Sermon on the Mount. There is a leper who asks for healing, and Jesus heals him. In the next paragraph, the centurion who comes requesting that Jesus heal his servant who is paralyzed and famously says, you don't need to actually come to my house. You can do it right here. Verse 14 Jesus comes to Peter's home. We're in Capernaum here. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Jesus touches her and heals her. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So the first demonstration of Jesus' authority or messianic power and authority is that he has power over sickness to heal it. <clears throat> um, in verse 18, we're told that he gives orders to depart to go across the sea. We have a little interlude there. And in verse 23, we pick up on that. He gets into the boat. They go across the sea. And while they're on the sea, there is a terrifying storm. His disciples are scared to death. Save us, Lord, we are perishing, they say. He says to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? He got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So the next stage is his authority over natural forces. They get to the other side, and this is where he encounters the Gadarene or Gadarene demoniacs. They cry out, what business do we have with you, son of God? They entreat him to be cast into the swine, and he does that, and then he leaves. So now, not only does he have power over sickness and over the forces of nature, but over the demonic forces as well. We turn the page, and they bring the paralytic to him, and Jesus' response, strangely, is not to heal the man initially, but to say to him, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes say, this fellow is blaspheming. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, 
Why are you thinking evil in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And in case there's any question, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can tell whether it really happened or not. But if you're going to say get up and walk, you better be able to deliver the goods. So Jesus focuses on the sin and the forgiveness, which he understands is the far deeper issue here. But in order to demonstrate his authority that the Son of Man has on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And that's what happened. After that, he calls Matthew, a famously sinful guy in the eyes of all around him, says to him, follow me. Matthew gets up and follows him. And then a whole bunch of tax collectors and sinners end up eating with Jesus. And so now we have Jesus doing something even more amazing than dealing with demons. Dealing with human sin and sinners. And, and exercising his authority over such as we. Finally, then, in verse 18, the synagogue official came, and through the other Gospels we know him to be Jairus. I think that's a safe conclusion bows before him and says, my daughter has died. But come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus goes and does that. As he goes, there is a woman in the crowd who is suffering from this hemorrhage. She touches his garment and he assures her that her faith has made her well. So, my suggestion is that the reason Matthew does what he does with these miracles is that he is developing an argument, and at this point in the argument, he is arguing that these miracles demonstrate the authority, the messianic authority of Jesus, and he makes his argument really well by going from the least to the greatest demonstration of that authority. Now, along the way, don't miss the fact that authority is the theme that it is throughout here, okay? I alluded to it a couple times, but with the leper, what does a leper do? He comes and bows down before him and calls Jesus Lord. The centurion is a man under authority who understands how authority works, and Jesus, you've got that authority. You go down to the issue of them being in the boat, and what is the response of the disciples? What kind of a guy is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I mean, there's the authority question again being demonstrated. The demons know who they're dealing with. What do we got to do with you, son of God? Can we please beg you for this move here? But there's no question. Jesus is the one with the authority. And now Jesus has the authority in chapter 9 to forgive sin. And he demonstrates that authority and says specifically, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has this authority, I will heal this man of his illness as well. And the crowd is struck and glorifies God because God has given such authority to a human being. Again, his authority is striking in this simple way that he says to these disciples, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows. And finally, the authority over death itself. 
The synagogue official bows down before him and says, but if you lay your hand on her, she will live. Um, so I, I think that's what's going on with, with, with Matthew here. Um, and I think um, that it is in keeping with the overall form of his argument. Um, what may bother us is that he doesn't tell us what he's doing. You know, you kind of wish he would say, just in case you people, particularly in the 20th century, are going to get nervous when this turns out not to be the kind of history you're used to. Um, and what genre are we talking about here? I don't know. But he, he feels perfectly content to say, I'm, I'm, or my editorial principle here in writing this book is that I am making an argument. The editorial principle for Luke is I am making a chronologically logical argument. The editorial policy for Matthew is I am making a logical argument based in my argument. It is the argument itself that structures my book. And I, and I think that's, that's a very helpful way to, to see what's going on um, and to let him do what he's doing. Um, let me make one, one final point here, um, and, and that is that you may have noticed I skipped over a couple of paragraphs or lines here and there, um, and so I wish we had another long period here to talk about those things. But let me just, let me just raise a couple of things here. I don't mean in, in making the argument that I'm making for it to become a straitjacket, and now every phrase, every sentence has to fit neatly into this, into this framework. I do think it's a framework that's doing some work. I, I do. I do think my argument's a pretty good one, um, but, but I don't want it to become a straitjacket. I want it to be a guiding editorial principle. So <clears throat> there are some, some lingering questions for me. Um, in chapter 8, verses 8 to 22, the, the stuff about the foxes, um, and I need to go home and bury my father, and Jesus says, no, you know, you, you're not, you're not going to have a home if you follow me, and you've got to just leave everybody and come and follow me. What's going on there? Luke, Luke includes this in chapter 9 after the, uh, Peter's profession of faith. For Luke, it is, the, it is a, I think, a kind of a crucial question in the turn toward Jerusalem. It comes right at this very poignant moment of, okay, we're going to Jerusalem. You want to come? Well... Be careful, because you are, you are dying, okay? Matthew, I think, wants to get it up front. Um, the authority of Jesus is not to be questioned or taken lightly, and so he has it in here, um, I think. Um, the woman with bleeding in the story of Jairus' daughter, I think, well, you could say, well, that's a lesser miracle than raising someone from the dead. Well, that, that's not a big deal here. I, it's so woven into the story about going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead that it's hard to tell that story of Jairus' daughter without telling the story of the woman with the bleeding. Um, in chapter 9, verse 14 and following, I will say this is the one that's most puzzling to me. Um, and, I, and, I, and I will confess, I don't think I've ever really understood the imagery of the um, patch on the garment, the new wine and old wineskins. Um, John's disciples come to him at this point. Um, whether, whether that little episode is somehow sort of connected to something else that he's telling, um, I don't know. 
But I will admit that paragraph, verses 14 to 17 of chapter 9, is one that I'm, I'm not sure what to do with. But I, again, I don't want it to be a straitjacket. I want it to be a, a guiding principle. The, the last one to mention is at the end, we stopped um, at verse uh, 26. And Matthew's account continues on and says that as he went from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And he asked them, Do you believe I can do this? They say, Yes, Lord. He touches their eyes and heals them. Their eyes are opened um, and they are able to see. Verse 32, as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, and saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, eh, I think he's doing this by demonic power. So, the question of authority, by what authority is this happening? But, it does sound like we end up with two miracles, healing a blind man and a mute man, a man who cannot speak, sound like we've kind of gone back to like the beginning of, of a lesser level of miracle, if you will. So what's happening at this point? Um, this is where having the Gospels alongside each other, I think, can once again turn out to be helpful. I mentioned that in Mark's Gospel, there are just two miracles um, that occur in Mark's Gospel and do not occur in the other Gospels at all. The first one is um, a healing of a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, of a, um, uh, which one comes first? Uh, uh, the deaf and mute man in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, you have the healing of the blind man whom Jesus heals and asks him if he can see. And he says, I can see, but it's like people are like trees. And Jesus touches him again, and he is fully given sight. I can't go on in detail about this, but if you were to look at the context in Mark, um, a couple of chapters coming into it and then right on through to Peter's profession, um, it's fascinating what's going on there. Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples the deeper truths of the Spirit and of following Christ and walking with Christ. And they aren't getting it. And they have this discussion about bread. You remember? Um, and, and they just, they're just kind of struggling. And, and so then you have these two miracles. And I think in both cases, what you've got are miracles serving as illustrations and, and having a kind of heuristic impact. Jesus is showing the disciples themselves. He is showing them that they are, they are deaf mutes in whom his work is to give hearing and speech. And they are blind men, um, but Jesus' work is to give them sight. And he has been giving them sight, but at this point, people are still kind of looking like trees. And so part of the implication of that miracle is, and Jesus is saying that my, my work's not done yet, but it's going to be done. There, there, these are pictures of the disciples and, and this is part of why I think Mark's gospel is very much about the experience of the disciples with Jesus. That's an interesting idea in its own right, that miracles 
serve more than one purpose in Jesus's work. And one of the purposes they can serve is to give pictures of Jesus's work and of Jesus's followers in whom he is doing that work. I think that might be what's going on here, that, 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 that as they leave and as Matthew moves us away from this sequence, you have, a, you have a, a, a couple of additional episodes in which he is giving his, his followers and his would-be followers a picture of, of, of what Jesus himself is doing and seeks to see done in those followers. That they are being given um, uh, ears to hear and, and, and a mouth with which to speak. They are being given sight. And, and I just kind of ran Mark together with Matthew, but, but to, to start, take him in order, you, they, he, he gives sight and then he gives speech. That's a very interesting sequence. Sight or hearing and then speech. And, and so I think that's what's happening here and it takes you directly into the commissioning, the choosing, commissioning, instructing, and sending of the disciples. Now, one other dimension that I think is also going on here is that um, we, uh, many of us think of Isaiah when we think of the Hebrew prophets and the prophecies that are fulfilled and, and drawn on by the New Testament writers. Um, but one section that we often miss is from chapters um, 29-ish to 35. Um, we know the book of Emmanuel early on, chapters 6 to 12. We pick up with Isaiah 40, the forerunner, the servant passages on through to the, the day of the Lord in chapter 61. But, but chapters 29 to 35 are very interesting. Looking forward to a day of the Lord. And one of the things that happens in those passages is that they specifically talk about the fact that when the Lord comes, one of the ways he will demonstrate that he is who he is, is that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dumb will speak, the lame will walk. When these miracles happen in the Gospels, understand that more is going on than just a specific individual is being healed. Um, they are, in addition, often I think pictures, illustrations, and heuristic devices to teach us and they are also affirmations of the day of the Lord having come um, and, and these being signs um, of, of that day and of that Lord. Um, for chapter 35 of, of Isaiah, verse 4, Behold, your God will come in vengeance. The recompense of God will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. And then it goes on to talk about the redeemed and the ransomed coming with joyful shouting to Zion. Um, I, I think, and in in back in chapter 29, there's a similar kind of allusion to these signs specifically being signs of that day of the, of the Lord. So, I think Matthew, who is so rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, um, may, may also be including those specific signs at the end of chapter 9 um, as a way 
of attesting again to, to who Jesus is, that he is that Christ, hinted at not only in the early chapters of Isaiah and in 40 and beyond, but even in these chapters 29 to 35. And so then you get the conclusion, and chapter 9 should end with verse 34, not 35, um, um, where the issue once again is, where's this authority coming from? Matthew makes it clear where it's coming from, and one of the ways he does it is he points to the healing of the blind and the, and the healing of the, of the mute. And then I would put verses 35 and following into chapter 10 as a lead-in to the, to the work with the, with the disciples. Um, let me just stop right there uh, and, and open it up to you to ask questions, share thoughts,